Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, here in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm delighted to join my friend, Dr. Matt Hall, on the podcast. Dr. Hall is Vice President for Academic Services at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's also a prolific author. His latest book is one edited with Dr. Owen Strand on Carl Henry. It's called Essential Evangelicalism and features contributions from a variety of uh, leading experts on the life and the impact of Carl Henry on evangelicalism. And so we're going to talk uh, today about Carl Henry, about his impact, and sort of what evangelicals today can learn from his model of evangelical engagement in the culture. We're also going to talk about the movement, the evangelical movement, what concerns him and what uh, gives him pause and a wide variety of things, as well as why it's important for Christians to study and know their history, even parts of their history that they may not like. And so this should be a great conversation. Before we get to our conversation, I do want to thank all of you who have tweeted, who've posted about the podcast. Uh, If you'd like to send your feedback to us, we'd encourage you to send an email to wayhome at erlc.com. And I want to let you know, if you missed any of our podcasts, you can go to the podcast page on danieldarling.com, and we have all of our conversations up there. You can also subscribe via uh, iTunes, TuneIn, uh, Stitcher, and a new technology, a new app called Signal that's available for Apple devices. So I encourage you to uh, download the podcast in the format that, that you prefer. Also, before we get to the conversation, I want to tell you about Evangelicals for Life. This is an event we're hosting with Focus on the Family, January 21st and 22nd. It's uh, the first really uh, evangelical conference on pro-life, at least major conference in Washington, D.C., and it's uh, being paired with the March for Life, which is a big event every year, kind of uh, lamenting the decision of the Supreme Court on Roe versus Wade. And so we encourage you to to come to this conference. I have a coupon code for Way Home listeners. It's 20% off. So if you go to evangelicals.life or if you go to my website, danieldarling.com, and click to the links there and you register, you can use the coupon code WAYHOME. That's WAYHOME in all caps. So I hope to see you in Washington, D.C. But for now, let's join Dr. Matt Hall on the Way Home Podcast. So good to have my friend uh, Matt Hall here on the line. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Dan. It's a privilege. I should say Dr. Hall. L- let me talk a little bit about your pathway to what you're doing, uh, uh, teaching uh, the seminary level and administration at Southern Seminary, um, but really a, a historian, a student of church history and just history in general. Uh, was that something that was sort of a... Um, calling you sensed early on in your life or something you kind of stumbled into as you were going through school? Describe how you got to where you are. No, it came as a total shock. Um, if you had met me in you know, high school, uh, I was a really not even mediocre high school football player. I mean, mediocre would be overstating my athletic ability. I worked really hard, uh, but I, I, I mean, I just, I was a pastor's kid and I, I didn't know what I was doing in school. I got by just fine enough and uh, had a good experience in college, but really assumed and um, at some point in college thought I'd be going into full-time vocational ministry, uh, pastoring, maybe church planning. I kind of had kicked that around. Mm-hmm. Didn't really know why, but it just sounded like the right thing to do. Um, 
And so I ended up at seminary, you know, my wife and I came, uh, we were relatively newly married. I'd been doing some college ministry and about halfway through my time in seminary, I just realized the, the courses, the classes that I was enjoying the most were also the classes where I was performing the best academically and, uh, had never I had a little bit of that happen in college, and, and as I reflected on it, I realized the classes in college and then especially in seminary where that was happening were these history classes, and uh, church history classes in particular. And there were other classes that were just, I mean, I, they were really, really humiliating. Humbling might be a good, a better word, but they were also humiliating. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Lord used that experience to kind of find what was I finding joy in, um, and also performing well. And, and then just people around me, professors, um, even our, our president here at the seminary, uh, people who said, yeah, you, you should you should go for that. You should do that. And so I ended up going on for further graduate studies in, in American history and, and just really enjoyed it. And, and just found as well, not just the study of it, but as I went further into the study of it, I, I really fell in love also with teaching it to other people, both in, in our local church and, and at the collegiate level and even at the you know, at the graduate level as well. I love history and I love um, American history and church history as it kind of all uh, relates to that. You've done some really good work on, um, I mean, your, your dissertation, right, was on evangelicals in the Cold War. Did I get that right? Yeah, I looked at a particular subset. I looked as, uh, specifically at Southern Baptists, mm-hmm. and, and I'm willing to, for reasons that will bore 99% of the population, I'm willing to include Southern Baptists within the broad historic evangelical mm-hmm. tradition. So, But yeah, so I looked at their experience. How did Southern Baptists, um, how did the Cold War experience shape the way they saw the world around them? Mm-hmm. And you've really done some great work on on uh, Southern Baptists and race. And uh, w- one of the things that I think is interesting and good right now, healthy, is that Southern Baptists are, have been talking about their a legacy, um, uh, a sad legacy in some respects uh, of racism and working now for racial reconciliation. And so my question is, why do you think it's important that Southern Baptists, but evangelicals particularly, not just kind of say, well, we're here now, we don't really need to talk about that, but we should actually learn from and think through our history. Yeah, I, I, you're exactly right, Dan. I think um, the goal, if, if the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, is at its core the message that sinners are reconciled to a righteous God. I think that's the heart of the gospel, right? That through Christ, we're reconciled to God. And we're reconciled to one another. That's to say that fallen, sinful men and women um, who have all kinds of enmity and hostility between themselves and God and between one another by virtue of the fall, that, that Jesus Christ has brought reconciliation both vertically with God and horizontally with one another. We get that. We, we love that message. That's the heart of what it means to be, I think, an evangelical. And I think Southern Baptists get that. That's our, that's our, our heart beats for that. But I think... Um, where history comes into that conversation is that history is nothing more than telling the truth about the past. That's all we're trying to do as historians. We tell good stories, hopefully, and we try to tell the truth. And sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes it's traumatic. Uh, sometimes it's very complex. It's usually not nearly as simple as people want it to be. Um, but that's the vision for, for good historical scholarship. And when we do that with a gospel framework what we're really saying is if we're going to be reconciled one to another, you know, black, white, brown, uh, regardless of race and ethnicity, if we're going to be reconciled to one another within the people of God, we're going to have to tell the, 
truth about the past. That's just that's we understand that in our personal relationships. If if uh, I've sinned against you, uh, the only way for you and I to be reconciled as as brothers in Christ is for me to confess that to you, to tell the truth about it, and then for you to extend forgiveness to me so that we can be reconciled. Well, that's certainly also true within our communities, mm-hmm. and uh, history plays a vital part in that process of reconciliation as we as we seek to tell the truth about the past and then to extend mercy and forgiveness in this in this journey of reconciliation. And in some ways, it can be a corrective for us as we look around and say, okay, and what just like previous generations might have been uh, captive to their culture and some of their perspectives, and, and you know, more captive to their culture than to the Word of God on cultural issues. How are we doing that in our in our generation? How are we tempted? Uh, how, what can we learn from them? Right? Yeah, and, and that's the that's the scary thing I think that history tells us is that you and I aren't that much smarter at all than the people <laughs> who came before us. Many of them, in fact, maybe most of them, in the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, who got it horrifically wrong on issues of slavery, uh, racial equality, mm-hmm. and injustice. I mean, these were very educated, predominantly men, but they were educated in some of the country's finest institutions. They believed in the Bible, and they just totally missed it on this. Mm-hmm. And they, they missed what the scriptures had to say on this, is, is the, I think the key thing. So that's sobering to all of us. And it should, as you're saying, Dan, it, it should give us a humility and a a meekness, I might even say, about our own context to say, okay, are there those blind spots that we have um, been held hostage by the culture and where our our faithfulness to the scriptures has been kind of co-opted? Um, you know, I, I think we struggle with these continually uh, in terms of we, we, we give a lot of attention right now to issues of sexuality, and there's a, there's a large I think, group within the evangelical movement that feels the pull of the culture to, uh, to move on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are issues throughout evangelicalism where uh, we're going to have some disagreements over issues of, of social ethics and justice, and we're always trying to test and say, okay, is this my American citizen identity that's reigning supreme? Is this my uh, white male identity that's reigning supreme? Or am I allowing the word of Christ to reign supreme, and for that to reorder and reprioritize all of the things that I value, the things that I hold to be most true. I think we, we sometimes lack the self-awareness to do that, and that, that'll show up in a, in a range of issues. And usually you can tell what, when that's happening by what are the things that make people the most angry? What are the things that get you really riled up? Mm. And what are the things that you're basically indifferent to these other things? And I can usually tell about myself uh, I can diagnose my own heart and my own thinking pretty quickly, I think, if I start to ask those questions of myself, and I think it's true for others as well. How do you counsel folks, particularly when you're reading works of great Christians in the past, say Jonathan Edwards or John Broadus or others who are just great theologians, have really shaped our Christian faith, and yet you look at their lives and you say there's some blind spots there, particularly on race, or maybe others uh, in history had blind spots on other issues. Is there a kind of a grid, a way to read these folks and learn from them, but also, I mean, how, how do we do that? Yeah, I think one important thing to say at the beginning is that we, we need to do this in community. And one of the dangers, I think, for, for a lot of us, particularly for white evangelicals, if we're going to talk on the race issue, for example, mm-hmm. it's hard for white evangelicals to read, let's say, the Puritans or Jonathan Edward critically on issues of racial equality and the image of God. 
because we, for, for many of us, we love the Puritans. We love Jonathan Edwards. Mm-hmm. But our brothers and sisters of color look at it and say, okay, are you going to actually be honest about this? Mm-hmm. And are you, going to, are, you, are you going to be selective? Um, and so I think reading historical sources and texts in community uh, is one way to maybe, in some ways, uh, even if subtle, it can help inoculate us a little bit uh, from that tendency. I want to talk about church history and Christians really knowing church history. I feel like me personally growing up evangelical, I grew up in a more conservative strain of evangelicalism, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, church history was just not a part of our learning and training and growing up. We learned the gospel, thankfully. We learned the scriptures. You know, We learned Bible verses. We never had a sense of like church history. And I really feel like in some ways I missed... Which I, what I wish I've had. And I would guess in most evangelical churches, there's not a, a sense that, you know, we are standing on 2,000 years of church history here. Why should Christians know their church history? I mean, everyone's not going to be a Dr. Matt Hall teaching church history. Everyone's not going to be a historian. But why should Christians at least have kind of a cursory idea of church history? Yeah, I, I had a similar experience to you, I think, Dan, where, I mean, I was discipled and, and loved by men and women in a, in, a, in a faithful evangelical church who loved me, loved Jesus, and loved mm. the Bible. And so I, I thank God for those men and women. I know you do, too, in your own life. But, mm-hmm. but looking back, um, maybe, it, maybe it was happening, and I just didn't have the ears to hear it, but my memory of it is, is I just don't recall hearing a lot about the church in general, other than our particular local church. And I think you know the reason Christians need to be conscious of the history of the church is because the doctrine of the church. In other words, it's the body of Christ. And so when we talk about the church, we're not just talking about our own local manifestation in our local congregation. We're talking about the the kingdom of God, the the body of Christ that transcends space and time. We're talking about the the unity of the church, uh, the true church, uh, right now on the, on the, on the earth and this, this church that transcends, you know, the, a time, you know, the, the saints from ages past who, in, a, in just as real way as you and I are, they, we are bound to them by the same Holy Spirit. Uh, and there is a cloud of witnesses, you know, even now uh, with Christ. Um, and those that, that we await, you know, will all be united at the resurrection. That church is a reality now. And so the history of the church is 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 that story? It's not an ac- it's not a purely academic thing. It's not a it's not some abstract thing for people with PhDs who teach. It's a it's an issue of Christian discipleship and of and of getting a bigger picture of the incredible wonder of what God has done in Christ to bring together and to form a, a, a nation, a people for Himself from every tribe and tongue. And I think that's really the the charge then for for families, for pastors certainly for, for professors and teachers, but even at all those other levels to say, am I holding forward a vision to my, to my children, to the people in my church, uh, to the people that God's called me to disciple, to understand you're part of this grand story of redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, Timothy George used to put it this way, you know, famous historian, he's the dean of Beeson Divinity School. You know, when he taught church history that he would come in on the first day and say, you know, my name is Timothy George. 
professor of church history, and my job is to convince you that there was someone between the Apostle Paul and your <laughs> grandmother, and that those people matter. <laughs> that's and I think really that's good. exactly right. You know that that's that's the job. That's really and, good. Uh, and what a great job. You know, I, I I so resonate with that, and I and I feel like the more I've studied church history, it gives me a sense of of comfort when I look at the current times. You, you can look at the troubled times and say, oh, you know, there's problems in the church, and what are we going to do? But then you look at the the long just history of the church and say, God, Christ is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It it can be a corrective, right, for, I guess, troubled thinking or even wrong thinking about the current state of the church, right? Absolutely. You know, the the writer of Ecclesiastes was right. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Church history, on the one hand, it, it should help us kind of calm our fears and anxieties when we look around and we see, okay, we've got two millennia of lessons to apply to the very things we're dealing with now, you know, mm-hmm. issues of you know sexual confusion, immorality. Uh, the church has dealt with that before, mm-hmm. been there, done that, uh, and and has endured and persevered. And on the other hand, the history of the church also should warn us, mm-hmm. because it tells us that empires rise and empires fall, and it's uh, only the the only promises that endure are to the church. So, mm-hmm. uh, the Roman Empire rose and fell. All these other medieval empires rose and fell, and one day the American Empire will fall. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It will happen. Uh, we don't know when, but the Church of Jesus Christ will persevere and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so it should, on the one hand, give us some hope and some confidence and some, some real valuable tools. And on the other hand, I think it should give us a sobriety to say, okay, our, our, this, this place is not home for us. We are indeed pilgrims. Uh, passing through. It also gave me great comfort as a pastor, just and humbled me in some ways, because, you know, you're, you're preaching through books of the Bible, or you're reading your Bible, and you realize, like, I'm actually not the first person who's wrestled with, <laughs> yeah. you know, predestination, or, or wrestled with justification by faith. And, and it's a real humbling thing to say, like, we're not the first ones to wrestle with these things. And, and yet, I, I think in, in many evangelical churches, you'd get the sense that like we've just discovered Jesus, like in this generation, you know. That's right. Um, and so I, I'm grateful for that helpful word. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about kind of a new book that you've been involved with and edited, "Essential Evangelicalism: The Enduring Influence of Carl Henry." There's been a lot of you know renewed interest in the impact of Carl Henry on evangelicalism, particularly where we are now uh, uh, in in the West. And so, first of all, what really intrigued you about studying Carl Henry, and why do you think he's important for us to study today? Yeah, I, I uh, that pro- this book came out of two conferences, actually. Uh, one was in Louisville, one, the other was in Chicago, to commemorate the 100th anniversary of, of Carl Henry's birth. Mm-hmm. And um, Owen Strand, who co-edited the book with me, we write about this a little bit in the introduction. We wrote it from the perspective of two I think I think we're both Generation X, mm-hmm. but two young evangelicals who never actually got to meet Henry. Mm-hmm. And we kind of felt like we wanted to be a bridge between this one generation that's really uh, right with us, uh, including some other Generation Xers who had met Henry and had even studied under him, and some baby boomers, and then this whole rising millennial generation that has no clue who, who Henry was. And, um, you know, Henry was this... this gigantic figure in, in American evangelicalism after World War II had a profound influence. I mean, you name about any evangelical uh, publication, institution, mm-hmm. conference, movement, 
and he was probably somehow connected to it. If he wasn't leading it directly, he was somehow involved in it. And he was just, he was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's largely been forgotten. And uh, so for, for me in particular, uh, I think what Henry does for me is he, he's a constant reminder that, uh, that a Christian worldview, to use that term, uh, it brings together, in, in the best sense of the word, um, it brings together a deep commitment to evangelism, for example, and the, and the commitment to seeing men and women and children uh, brought to saving faith in Christ with a, with a deeply Christian social ethic um, that's committed to how do, we, how do we advocate and work for justice and peace and righteousness right now. And those, those things, often evangelicals have struggled to bring those two together. And I just love how Henry was able to, not perfectly, but he, he's consistently sought to do that. You think about that post-war evangelicalism, the men who built sort of evangelicalism, so to speak, obviously Christ building a church, but it's really amazing the institutions we kind of take for granted, right, that are here because of men like Henry, men like Billy Graham, and others who who built these institutions that we sort of just assume are always going to be here. Yeah, they're they're everywhere. And, and the institutions that they started, you know, whether you're talking Fuller Seminary or or publications like Christianity Today, mm-hmm. um, but then also institutions that evangelicals kind of revitalized. You know, Wheaton College, for example, had been around, mm. but Wheaton really got kind of went through a renaissance and a, and a massive expansion as a result of the post-war evangelical surge. Mm-hmm. Um, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, I mean, just Dallas Seminary mm-hmm. had a similar kind of renaissance and re-energization. And you could just go around like that, the Berlin Congress on World Evangelism mm-hmm. and you know, what eventually would become the Lausanne uh, movement. Uh, just so many things that... Um, and then you think of some of the, uh, you know, sort of like parachurch ministries like Campus Crusade and uh, Navigators and all these sort of... Yeah, that kind Young of, Life. I mean, I was in Young Life. Life and yeah. when I was a high school kid, I had no idea Young Life was part of this uh, mm-hmm. massive post-war evangelical boom. Yeah, there was something about that era, right? I, I, it's hard to pin down on just that really, what was it about the evangelicalism of that era that really lent itself to that sort of massive growth? And Yeah, you had a number of factors. One, just socially, you do have the baby boom. And I think in post-war America, you know, the, the story of the evangelical surge, you can't explain it entirely by social forces. But that is part of the story, is just what's going on in America at large uh, after World War II, and just the population growth and the economic uh, prosperity that starts to come, that certainly helped kind of catalyze that, those movements. But I think these evangelicals, uh, like Carl Henry, many of them were trained in some of the nation's leading institutions. You know, they'd gone to Harvard, they'd gone to Princeton, they'd gone to Boston University or wherever, and they had they had a real sense of hope and confidence that um, that the kind of retreat of fundamentalism was not you know that was not the future they they had a deep confidence that evangelical faith uh faith and practice could contend uh at the front you know at the front of the line so to speak could contend with you know the most hostile and anti-christian worldviews, the most uh, aggressively competing ideologies mm. and uh that evangelicalism had to be at the front of the line it had to be leading the charge and so they, they were deeply optimistic about their ability to build massive institutions and launch huge initiatives and, and start publications from scratch. And they were able to mobilize support from a variety of Christian lay people, many who are anonymous or, or largely forgotten. And uh, so just all these things kind of came together. 
And they, they just, I think, really thought, if the Lord is in this, we can do it. Mm. I have a couple questions about that, because this, this really fascinates me. Um, uh, you know, one, it does speak, we don't always talk about, you know, like to talk about this, especially maybe Gen Xers, even millennials, about institution building. It doesn't seem, you know, exciting and organic or whatever those terms are. There's a lot of anti-institutional spirit, I think, uh, among evangelicals, even just in the culture itself, because we've been disappointed by some of our most cherished institutions. But it really is important, right, to to be about building good institutions. Yeah, you know, that's uh, a lot of us, you function within an institutional context, context I do. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's maybe a recovery of uh, of that vision right now going on. Um, because I do think, you know, there's, you can, you can build your own empire, your own quote brand, you know, that's everyone's trying to build their brand right now. You can do that individually, but the moment your heart stops beating and your brain waves cease and mm. they, and they drop you in the dirt, your impact is, is over. I mean, mm. really, uh, the, the legacy and the influence that one can have is, it has kind of a compounding effect when it's institutionalized, you know, mm. you can actually have an influence and, and have kind of ripples um, long after you're dead. And I think that's what you see in someone like Carl Henry, you know, all these institutions that, uh, you know, he's been, he's been dead now over a decade, but the ripples of that influence continue on. And it's not just Carl Henry, it's, it's so many others mm-hmm. with the evangelicalism. And I think if you look around where we are today, I'm hopeful for the future because I see a variety of, of evangelical men and women who are leading in these areas and and that continues on, but there there is, as you said, I think um, there's always going to be within evangelicalism a, a a sector that is deeply skeptical about the enduring value of of institutions, and mm. and uh, and that's just we, we got to sh- we have to show that it can be done well, it can be done in a manner that's distinctly Christian, uh, that reflects the values of the kingdom of God, not the values of this world. I think you even see that with some of the conversations within our own denomination, Southern Baptist Convention. I just look back and see, you know, the uh, conservative resurgence and what a great thing that was to to get a, a massive denomination uh, like the Southern Baptist Convention right on orthodoxy, right on the gospel. Because of the, the the good it can have uh, for gospel advancement, the catalytic catalytic effect it can have in the culture, even if you're not Southern Baptist, and so yeah, it's, and it, I and I work at one of those, mm-hmm. you know, at Southern Seminary. I could never have the impact on men training for pastoral ministry if mm-hmm. I, if I just said I'm going to go set up shop mm-hmm. uh, in my garage, <laughs> and you you know anyone who wants to come by, come on by. Well, I'd be pretty bored because I don't think anyone would come by. But here, you know, we've got you know, in any given year, we'll have maybe close to 5,000 students. Mm-hmm. I mean, where else do you get to throw your life at mm-hmm. that and say, okay, I want to, Lord, use that in, in the ways that you see best. And, and that's replicated throughout the Southern Baptist Convention and all of our seminaries and places like the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and, and throughout evangelicalism. Um, it, it's an in- incredible thing when it, when it works. When, now, when it's, when it's toxic, and, it, and it's and it, when it's the opposite, then it has horribly damaging effects. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen that in uh, in evangelical history and in Southern Baptist history. And that's I think what makes a lot of us, you know, that, that's what partially accounts for some of that skepticism is that we've also seen really bad examples of toxic institutions that are undermining the kingdom of Christ. Last question: as as you think about Carl Henry and you think about his church history, and you look at the evangelical movement. 
as it is today. What, in, in terms of the, the, the future of the evangelical movement, what, I guess, gives you great hope? Uh, what do you see that's really good and fruitful right now? And what would give you pause or make you concerned? Yeah, I, um, I'm young. I'm only 35, so I hope to still be around for a while. And uh, so I have deep, like you, Dan, I, have, I feel a deep personal investment in that question because mm. I'd like to think, you know, should the Lord tarry, that I'll be around to see how the future of the evangelical movement evolves. Um, but I, I, mean, I am deeply encouraged and hopeful by what I see um, as the best of the evangelical movement. That is to say, a diverse constituency um, that is not in full agreement on every single theological detail, but that there, I do think there's a continuing evangelical center that's com- committed to and in agreement on the core of the gospel. You know, why did Jesus have to die? What are we talking about when we talk about the authority of the Bible? I think that's there, actually. I'm, I'm maybe more hopeful than some. I think that's there, and I think it's going to endure. And I'm also encouraged by what I, what I hope to be an increasingly uh, racial and ethnic diversity within the evangelical movement. For most of evangelicalism's history, evangelicalism has been very much tied to kind of white Protestantism. And, and there's been this incredibly wonderful and rich historic black tr- uh, church tradition, for example, mm-hmm. that I now see those two streams more than they have before, uh, I think, starting to intermingle. And I think mm-hmm. that's an incredibly hopeful thing for the future of evangelicalism. I guess what I would say, what gives me not concern, but just we'll see what happens is kind of goes back to what I said earlier. Will evangelicals, particularly American evangelicals, continue to be able to prioritize their identities, Uh, that they're first and foremost, they're citizens of the city of God, to use Augustine's language, and that that citizenship orders and frames all other identities. And my concern for American evangelicals, it's not unique to me, and it's nothing new, as this has always been true, is that we would invert our identities, and that our American identity, for example, would, would be the one that kind of defines all others. And, and that's what I think we're just going to have to watch and pray, and for pastors and leaders and teachers and those who write and speak on these issues mm-hmm. to be continually calling our brothers and sisters to, to think biblically about where is their, where's their identity, where's their citizenship, and what does it mean to seek the good of the city that they're in now um, to do that, um, but also to remember that, that we are marching towards Zion, to use that old language. Mm. That's such a great word, and I appreciate you joining us, Dr. Matt Hall. We, we didn't have time to get to questions about your Philadelphia Eagles, so... Uh... Oh, why would we? Why would we torture anyone with that? <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I really appreciate you joining us, and uh, I encourage everyone to get this a copy of this book, Essential Evangelicalism: uh, The Enduring Influence of Carl Henry. Uh, Dr. Hall, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Dan. Well, I want to thank my good friend, Dr. Matt Hall from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, for joining me on this great discussion on Carl Henry and church history and evangelicalism. Really encourage you to get the book that he edited, Essential Evangelicalism. That should be available. We'll have links on the website. Also, if you would like to give us some feedback, email us at wayhome at erlc.com. Or if you prefer, please write a review on iTunes or Stitcher or any of the uh, popular places uh, you go to listen to podcasts. Also, we would love to see you in Washington, D.C. 
next January at the Evangelicals for Life event that we're hosting with Focus on the Family. We have a coupon code, WAYHOME, that's in all caps, WAYHOME, that will give you 20% off for WAYHOME listeners. So when you go to the website and register, please put that in. But for now, thank you for listening to the WAYHOME podcast. <laughs>